Welcome to episode 73 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark Abel, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. This has been kind of a fun week in terms of special days. We had Pi Day on the 14th and followed by the Ides of March and St. Patrick's Day. And tomorrow is the first day of spring. But next week on the 23rd has got to be the cutest day of the year. It's National Puppy Day. And my birthday. And your birthday. And if we have any residents uh, or students listening in they, or, or folks who work in training programs, today's match day. And so that's another big day for a lot of folks. Uh, on this podcast, we're going to highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems. If you want to get all of the poems, one a day, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get a poem daily, plus a great online primary care reference with over 800 disease and symptom chapters and thousands of interactive decision support tools, check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. You can get free CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians for listening to this podcast. Just go to iafp.mclms.net to claim it. This week, we're going to discuss low-carb diets for patients with type 2 diabetes, managing patients, with chronic back pain and reinfection rates in patients with COVID. So a really good lineup today. So I'm going to start off. This is a, a study that was in the BMJ 2021 by uh, Goldenberg and colleagues, efficacy and safety of low and very low carb diets for type 2 diabetes remission, systematic review and meta-analysis of published and unpublished randomized trial data. So this was a systematic review and they did a very good search. Um, I, I believe this was a Cochrane related re- review and they searched Cochrane Central, which is their repository, uh, for other databases, plus three trial registries to try and find unpublished as well as published studies. They were looking for studies that compared a low-carb diet or a very low-carb diet to a low-fat diet or to no particular diet, just sort of usual diet uh, in patients with type 2 diabetes. They did a good uh, standard um, uh, meta-analysis and had a couple of authors looking at all of the studies, evaluating the quality. They identified only 23 fairly small studies compared to control diets or comparison diets in eight studies with a whopping 264 patients, some receiving diabetes medication. Low-carb diets did achieve remission after six months in an additional 32 participants for every 100 treated, so a number needed to treat of about three to four. Patients not receiving medication didn't have a greater likelihood of remission than control patients, though. Body weight decreased over six months, but the difference disappeared at 12 months. Participants who were able to follow a very low-carb diet, only 50 to 80% could do that, even with behavioral support, had a similar weight loss as those on a more standard low-carb diet. A majority of the research had moderate to high risk of bias, and there was moderate heterogeneity between the studies. Uh, They also saw some evidence of publication bias regarding weight loss, meaning studies finding no weight loss were less likely to see light of day. So bottom line, cutting out the bread and the pastas can be tried by patients with type 2 diabetes to lower their blood glucose. Uh, Six months of a low-carb diet with less than 26% calories as carbs was more likely than other diets or usual diets to lower A1C to below 6.5% and get their fasting sugar down. A very low-carb diet, which is less than 10%, also worked for those who could stick to it. But the body weight decreased over six months. The decrease wasn't sustained. 
And the studies in this analysis overall weren't of great quality and longer term data uh, just weren't available. So uh, a bit of a mixed bag. Um, John, what do you think? I've never met a diet that didn't work. <laughs> all, all diets work and no diets work. I mean, really, uh, the, the final common pathway is always a reduction in calories. And I have no doubt that these diets resulted in a reduction in calories and therefore a reduction in weight. Uh, so we, we've seen other diets also that are effective for diabetes, high protein diet, et cetera, ketogenic diet. So, so diets work. So the best diet is the one that the patient's going to stick with. If it's low carb, fine. Yeah, I have no problem with low carb diets. I think initially when they were first proposed 10 or 15 years ago, or maybe longer, um, you know, the thinking was, oh, you're going to be eating too much fat, too much, you know, uh, unhealthy things, but probably isn't an issue. And, and so I have no problem with them. Henry, tell us why this is a terrible idea. I'm not going to tell you why it's a terrible idea. This is actually not really new at all. Uh, before Banting and Best discovered insulin over 100 years ago, uh, the treatment for children with type 1 diabetes was a very low-carbohydrate uh, ketogenic diet. Um, and while it provided temporary relief of symptoms and enhanced life expectancy, it only did it modestly. And my colleague, Mary Noel, who was a who was uh, retired now, but as a dietitian, used to tell us, you know, nobody wants to brag about this, but high fat, low uh, carbohydrate diets work in regards to uh, glycemic control. What we don't know are, as you pointed out, the, the long-term concerns with regards to sustainability and in the patients with type 2 diabetes, a very different kind of disease. What does that, this actually mean to things like complications and the like? Yeah, and that's going to be a really hard thing to study in a randomized trial. Um, you could get at it with an observational study if you would, had a really rich data set on lots and lots of potential confounders, and you could do what we call a propensity score matched analysis. You might be able to look at clinical outcomes as well, but again, that would still be subject to a lot of potentially unmeasured confounding. So um, yeah, this is something where to some extent we have to take it on faith that uh, it's going to provide some downstream benefits. Henry, you have a quiz for us. Yes. Yeah, so we've talked about managing patients with pain in general and back pain and migraines and so on. And the general uh, disappointment, if you will, from using antidepressants and anticonvulsants. But the American um, College of Physicians and the American Academy of Family Physicians teamed together and released some new guidelines for managing patients with musculoskeletal pain. So the question uh this episode asks, based on their review of the evidence, which of the following are most likely to benefit patients? A, opioids, B, cannabinoids, C, surgery, D, anesthetic injections, E, topical NSAIDs. Stay tuned. All right, we will. And now we're going to hear a little more about chronic back pain from your poem. This was a systematic review done by Kolber and colleagues that was published in the Canadian Family Physician in January. And I apologize ahead of time. This is a brute 
It's just a lot of stuff. Um, these folks w did not care about academic job security and did not worry about generating a bunch of LPUs, the so-called least publishable unit. They did 15 individual systematic reviews. Holy cow, that was the head slap to the forehead there, in case you didn't get, catch that. Their overall focus were, was to look at patients with chronic low back pain lasting at least three months. Now, uh, one of the limitations, though, is that to be included, the studies had to have a specific responder analysis within the study. And we'll talk a little bit about what that might, might mean here in just a moment. Ultimately, they identified 63 trials with over 16,000 participants. Now, a couple of their queries resulted in no hits that because they lacked that responder analysis. Um, and those included things that might have studied acetaminophen, cannabinoids, muscle relaxants, and antidepressants other than duloxetine. Um, and as you might imagine, when you've got multiple different studies looking at multiple different kinds of interventions, the overall quality of the studies was kind of mixed. So their primary focus was to try to identify those reports where there was at least a 30% reduction in pain. Okay, And so those studies that didn't report that um, were not included in the analysis. So there's still plenty of um, uh, material that's out there. Nonetheless, they had a lot. So so the most robust data that they had, 18 trials, dealt with exercise. Um, sometimes the exercise was guided by physiotherapists. And what they found was that most of the time, about half of the patients who were exercising had significant reduction uh, compared to about a third of control patients, the number needed to treat of seven. But more importantly, and highly unique to this specific intervention, was that even after the intervention was over, there was sustained pain relief in these individuals with the number needed to treat of about six. Okay. So that's pr uh, pretty noteworthy um, and kind of intuitive as well. The uh, trials of oral anti-inflammatory medications, those worked. The number needed to treat it was also about six while they were taking them. Duloxetine was a mixed bag. It was more effective with a number uh, needed to treat of 10 for pain control, but patients dropping out discontinued because of side effects, the number needed to treat to harm was 11. So for every person who benefits, one stops taking it because they couldn't stand the stuff. Um, spinal manipulation, uh, the quality of the trials was poor, but that also was effective with a uh, number needed to treat of about six. Topical capsaicin also uh, worked, but don't get the stuff in your eyes. Um, acupuncture, when they looked at just the high-quality trials, it didn't seem like that worked. Uh, corticosteroid injections, that didn't work either. Opioids, when they looked at those data, it turned out that there was significant uh, pain relief with a number needed to treat of about 16 but again, the dropout rate due to side effects was fairly high with the number needed to treat to harm of about five. So uh, pain relief was an important part of this, but it, uh, they did not address issues of function. So for me, the bottom line was that exercise was the only intervention that actually had sustained effects, that oral and anti-inflammatory medications work pretty well, but the others, the duloxetine and opioids, the dropout rate was too worrisome to think about using these as first-line um, treatments. Mark. Yeah, what a summary. 15 systematic reviews. I mean, I've done 
<laughs> about 15 in the past five, six years, but I got 15 publications out of it. <laughs> you know, so, right. um, so did my graduate students who appreciated it. But um, yeah, wow, that's that's an amazing uh, work. And um, I'm very impressed. And it's good to know, you know, I think sometimes we throw up our hands or we're kind of dismissive of other things, uh, of treatments for chronic pain. But it is good to know that we have things that work and that persist and that we have lots of different options because, you know, different patients are going to want acupuncture versus a pill versus, you know, some kind of a physical modality. So, um, you know, I think that's actually a, a bit op- on the optimistic side when I, when I hear this. John? It's interesting to see that uh, the injections didn't make the cut of a 30% decrease, uh, nor did surgery appear anywhere here either. I don't know if they looked at surgery, but surgery, in fact, would not make the cut in terms of relief of chronic low back pain other than acute sciatica that's not responsive to medical treatment. So as Mark said, I think this is a really good confirmation that the conservative things that we already do for our patients, encourage them to exercise, send them to physical therapy to get exercise training, use NSAIDs as needed and avoid opioids. These are all good things to see confirmed in a study. And the numbers needed to treat are remarkably consistent across these different interventions, except for opioids, with about one person really benefiting in six. So again, not bad, not bad for a chronic difficult problem. Yeah. And I think we have to be uh, encouraging and positive as we communicate with our patients about these things and use our evidence-based placebo effect. So we know it's what we're recommending is evidence-based, but we're also selling it to them. Um, And I think that can help to uh, enhance Mm -hmm. the potential benefit, hopefully. Um, And then I think, John, I think it's your turn now. Thank you, Henry, for that, to talk a little bit about a new COVID study. Yes. I just couldn't stay away from COVID. Sorry about that. But this study I thought was important and it appeared in Lancet just last week. Prior smaller studies have shown a high degree of protection against reinfection with SARS-CoV virus for up to about six months. That's the longest duration for which it's been studied. This study is the largest population-based study we have seen that estimates reinfection rates. The investigators used a large national testing database in Denmark to estimate the protection against repeat infection. They determined reinfection rates from September 1st through December 31st of last year of the individuals who had both positive and negative PCR tests during their first surge in Denmark, which occurred between March and May. So they compared the infection rates between those with and without a previous confirmed infection at least three months earlier so that they could avoid just continued infection rather than true reinfection. So here are the results. Of approximately half a million people initially tested, 11,727 or 2.2% were PCR positive. That is, they had had COVID-19. And 11,068 or 2.11% had a positive PCR among approximately half a million individuals, again, who were tested in the second period. So the question here is, What are the positive rates in those who were and were not infected the first time? And here are those results. There were 72, or that's 0.65%, of the PCR individuals from the first surge of the epidemic who tested positive again. So that's 0.65% tested a second time positive. 
Of the roughly half million who had tested negative during the first surge, there were 16,819, that's 3.27%, 3.27 compared to 0.65%, who tested positive during the second period. That is, they had tested negative in the past and now positive. Infection during the second period, therefore, was about 80% less likely in those who had a prior infection when you do the math. Uh, Individuals over 65, unfortunately, only had about a 50% protection against reinfection. Now, another way to look at this data to understand it easily is that only one in 154 individuals who had an initial infection got reinfected. So that's less than 1%, less than 1%. And this is actually consistent with other studies. I think a real limitation of this important study, because it's, it's so big and comprehensive, but a limitation is that they could not determine how many of these individuals who tested positive a second time had any symptoms with a reinfection. It may be that they just had a, a positive test. So we don't know. My guess is that some of them were symptomatic because these people were not under regular surveillance. These people may have gotten tested routinely, may not. Uh, but this, this does confirm other data. And I think we know now that for, say, at least three to six months, there's pretty good protection from that first injection. And the British have kind of taken advantage of this uh, and the fact that uh, the first injection of vaccine seems to provide pretty good protection. And they have decided in Great Britain to give everyone their first shot before they do the second round. And, and actually, their uh, rate of infection overall in the UK is going down much more steeply than in the US and in Europe. Uh, so the, the saga continues, and I suspect we will have more important studies as time goes on. Henry? Well, thank you, John. This uh, study, in my recollection, is probably the largest and may, in fact, be the best done and most generalizable study because it uh, was a population-based study as opposed to the healthcare workers, as you pointed out. It it also is incredibly reassuring. I I guess uh, my own apprehension about this is that with all of the variants that we're starting to see, um, does this apply to some of the variants? And um, and, and you know, as a parenthetical comment, this this virus is behaving very much like influenza in terms of the antigenic drifts that we are seeing, and mm-hmm. uh, we may in fact reach a point where the you know the next variants that are out there may behave enough dif- differently enough that just like influenza, we may only have partial immunity. So so I think this is one of those stories that will just continue to unfold over the course of the next year or two. Yeah. I mean, it struck me that that 80% is pretty close to the protection from the adenovirus vectored vaccines that are out there from AstraZeneca, from Johnson & Johnson. So it's pretty consistent with what you might expect to see in um, in patients with previous infection. Certainly not 100%. We also don't know uh, much about the individuals were the ones getting reinfected, those who were having more exposures, greater risk, you know, it, they're not necessarily exactly the same as those right. um, who didn't. So there, there's some right. things we can't know from this kind of a study, but it's super, really very interesting stuff. And I, I bet you we'll have a, a booster in the fall. I'm, I'm almost counting on a, a booster of the mRNA vaccines in the fall, I, I would think. I mean, that's my guess, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see. And we will also see what the answer is to the quiz next. 
So the quiz asked the question, based on the recent American College of Physicians and American Academy of Family Physicians of the review of the evidence, which of the following are most likely to benefit patients? A, opioids, B, cannabinoids, C, surgery, D, anesthetic injections, E, topical NSAIDs. So in September, it was a paper published by Kasim and colleagues in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Uh, they there um, did a systematic review, a network meta-analysis to compare various uh, management options. And as we discussed earlier, the quality of the studies are kind of mixed, but based on moderate certainty evidence, they strongly recommend st that we use a topical NSAID. Now, in the United States, only topical diclofenac is available commercially. So, uh, but those that demonstrated significant uh, benefit in terms of pain, function, as well as patient satisfaction and a low rate of side effects and relatively inexpensive. Uh, other treatments like oral NSAIDs, they gave a conditional recommendation because there were some adverse effects and um, some modest quality of the data. Things like acupressure and transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, they said the quality of the evidence on those are low, but it looks promising. And then they recommended against using opioids for treatment as a conditional recommendation because of low certainty evidence. So overall, the correct answer is E, we start with topical anti-inflammatory agents. Yeah, and that's going to actually be kind of a practice changer for me because I traditionally start with oral NSAIDs. And um, so that's great information to have. Thank you, Henry. Dr. Amir Kasim is the head of the basically evidence uh, synthesis unit for the American College of Physicians. He's done a lot of really high quality systematic reviews and guided uh, the development of a lot of really good guidelines. So uh, kudos to Dr. Kasim. And it is my turn for what we call the art literary recommendation. Well, I've been, <laughs> I'm not, I'm too busy. I haven't had time to read a damn book. So anyway, it's neither art nor literature, but it has been one of our favorites during the pandemic. It's all about soggy bottoms and raw dough and frantic failures. And yes, I'm talking about the Great British Baking Show. It's actually called the Great British Bake Off in, in the UK. And my wife is actually a very good baker uh, and has become a much better one, uh, not say much better, better one in the past year. Uh, my skills are limited to Southern style biscuits and cornbread, but we both love this show. I'm not, we are not normally fans of reality TV, but this is total comfort food of the genre. genre. It is charming, funny, and yes, sweet, and something we all need uh, a lot more of these days. So highly recommended. Well, thanks, gentlemen. And um, I'm going to uh, do the little uh, CME reminder, iafp.mclms.net. If you want to get CME credit for listening to us talk, the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. They designate this podcast for 0.5 AMA Category 1 credit hours. The IFP adheres to the conflict of interest policy, the ACCME and the AMA. You can read the whole uh, disclosure on their website. Hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Tell your friends, rate us on iTunes, and we'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.